Matthew chapter 5. If you will, let's stand together in reading God's Word. We have been looking at the Gospel of Matthew really since January. Um, and since June, we have been looking at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the Beatitudes. We are going to be focused on Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 today. But as our custom has been, let's just read all of the Beatitudes together to understand what it is the Lord is telling us. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with humble hearts. We pray, God, that you would speak to us in your word at this hour. As we have been listening to the words of your son Jesus, as he teaches this wonderful sermon, Lord, you have pricked our hearts. You have caused us to focus on your glory and your grace. And I pray, God, even at this hour, this moment, that you would cause us to understand that even in persecution, if we are your people, there is great reward. That is often difficult for us to get, to, to fathom. It's difficult for us to embrace. And sometimes, Father, we may even manufacture persecution on our persons that really is not of you. So God, I pray that you would cause us to understand what it means to be blessed, what it means to be happy in your kingdom, and why persecution and suffering brings us happiness. That is that is a paradox in our mind. Our finite ways of thinking, Lord, can't really grasp that. So I pray, God, you would teach us today what your heavenly reward looks like. Use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. God bless you. We began this sermon series in the Beatitudes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, I think it was the first Sunday of June. And here we are at the end of July. We come to the final of Jesus' list of attributes of happiness in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the Beatitudes are focused on blessed are, which can literally mean happy are, or actually a, a spiritual bliss. When we look at the list of Beatitudes, we're looking at attributes of the kingdom, and being citizens of the kingdom means that we are blessed. It means that we are happy. Y'all know what happy Christians look like? And Jesus here, as he's teaching, he, he's, he's, he's bringing out some paradoxes here. Happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, or happy are the meek. Happy are those who are hungry and thirsty. Right? Blessed are happy are the merciful Last week we looked at blessed are the peacemakers. And now we look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that we look at this as we look at all of the Beatitudes and, and, 
in the worldly thinking, we're, we're seeing a conundrum here. How can you be happy? How are you blessed if you're persecuted? How are you happy or blessed if you are reviled and actually cursed by your fellow human beings? Anybody here ever uh, received vile words from somebody and it hurt deeply? That old saying when I was growing up, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never hurt you, is a lie from the pit of hell. Words hurt. Words matter. Words can be blessings. Words can bring encouragement. Words can also hurt and cut down. And it's interesting here that Jesus is teaching, blessed are those who are persecuted, and he says that this is an attribute of the kingdom of heaven. We don't teach non-believers this. We don't teach them that when you come to Christ that you're going to be persecuted. Actually, and this is true, when we teach people about their sin and we teach them about the need for salvation and we point them to Jesus Christ, we say your life will be happy and it will be. Amen? We have some Christians in the room that know that their lives are happy in Christ. Are we happy? Yet Jesus is using some very interesting points of teaching here. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to unpack these Actually, verses 10 through 12 today. But let's stop and think here. This list of Beatitudes that we've looked at actually has two bookends. When you look at this section of Matthew chapter 5, the first bookend was in Matthew 5 verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the last bookend is here beginning in Matthew 5 verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. The Beatitudes begin and end with the same reward, if you notice. What is the reward that the Beatitudes begin with? And what does it end with? It's the kingdom of heaven. In verse 3, we see, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. When we look at verse 10, this is now the other end of it, the bookend here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And so the focus here of the Beatitudes, the, the theme is really righteousness, but righteousness in a particular godly way, and that is in the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Beatitudes of Jesus start and end with this common idea of possession of the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to possess the kingdom of heaven? We began in verse 3 with one must be poor in spirit. And what does that mean? We looked at that several weeks ago in the first week of June. To be poor in spirit means to be depraved in spirit. One who needs salvation in order to obtain the kingdom. And likewise, the end of this list of the Beatitudes here, these descriptions or attributes of the citizenship of the kingdom, we end with the persecution of the beloved. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm given a, an application to join a country, to join a people group, if, if I'm asked to join a, a social club, <laughs> hey, in order to join this social club, you're going to be persecuted. How many people are ready to sign up for that? Membership into any kind of a group is never sold with the negatives. Now, if you join this group, here's how you're going to suffer. We always want to point to the benefits and yes, we should. We should point people to the benefits of Christ because joining the church of God, His people, does not mean we make a choice to come into the church and be a member. We actually submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by understanding our sin. And we ask for His forgiveness. And God, through His mercy and His grace, grants that forgiveness. We have to understand how sinful we are in order to be ushered into the kingdom. But, us, but coming into the kingdom of heaven, think about this. How many of you were told when you gave your life to Christ, you know, join, join Jesus, join the church, and you're going to enjoy a lot of hardship and suffering. Amen. 
Anybody ever get that sales pitch? That's not going to go very far, is it? But it is a truth of the kingdom. And Jesus here is pointing out this truth to his disciples. So how how is this done? How is it that we come to the kingdom? How do we understand the blessings of the kingdom? How is this done? Remember that salvation is a gift granted by grace. Let's remember that. Because if we're not careful when we look at the Beatitudes, we may falsely think that we have to earn the kingdom because you have to be certain ways. So Jesus uses this language here of reward in this passage, and we might incorrectly infer this cause and effect of consequences in order to join the kingdom. You see, only if the children of God suffer persecution can they join the kingdom. That's what we may falsely think. In other words, we may falsely think, I have to go and be persecuted in order for God to love me. Let's make sure that we don't confuse the language here that Jesus is using, because he's using language of reward. And when we think of a reward, we often think we have to earn it. But if salvation is granted as a gift of grace, likewise, I think the reward of heaven is coming the same way. So how do we think about the Beatitudes here as we're closing out this sermon series and this study of the Beatitudes? Let's make sure we don't miss the point that Jesus is saying. We don't earn our way into the kingdom. But there are attributes of the kingdom that we must be aware of. You see, Christ's disciples here are in the greatest need of this instruction. You see, God's understanding of reward is not the same as our understanding of reward. So let's try to understand this today. You see, the happy life of the kingdom will require its citizens to endure hardship. That's for certain. Requirements of the citizens of the kingdom is that we will endure hardship. But more importantly, the children of God will endure great persecution. That's a promise throughout Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament with the children of God being persecuted by their enemies. We see it here in the Gospels as Jesus himself suffers the greatest persecution that any of us could ever fathom. And then when you read all throughout the New Testament, you see constantly over and over again as the church is established in the first century, they flourished, the kingdom flourished under great persecution to the point of martyrdom and death. You see, these words are hard to hear, and these words are harder to embrace. You see, the demanding and the disagreeable truth of persecution to our flesh requires that we, a deep meditation for us. We gotta ponder, God, what are you calling us to here? How many of you willingly want your flesh to suffer? I don't. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, today it's a lot better, but uh, this kind of a joke in our house for the last couple of weeks. My pinky hurts right now, right? Men's pinkies. When we, when our pinkies hurt men, we're just, we'd fall down and break. I really did a really, I really did a really good chopping off of the tip of my pinky a couple of weeks ago. I've been suffering. Trust me, I don't want to do this again. It hurts. It still hurts. Even, even last night I looked at Rhonda and said, my pinky hurts, Rhonda. And she gives me that loving wife support of, okay, love you, sweetheart. We don't desire pain and suffering. So what is it that God wants us to do? We are called to endure unfair persecution as his people. We are. That's what Jesus is saying here. As we stand firm for the standards of righteousness, remember righteousness is the theme of the, of the Beatitudes, as we stand firm for the standards of righteousness, here's what's going to happen. Persecution is coming. And only Jesus himself provides for us 
exactly what that looks like. You see, we cannot be Christ's soldiers and we cannot be citizens of the kingdom under, under any other condition. If we try to skip the requirements of the kingdom, we're not members of the kingdom. We cannot be loyal unless we can patiently face the rise of hostility toward the gospel. If we can't stand firm for the gospel in the face of persecution, how dedicated are we to Christ is the point. We who are God's children were promised that we will face hostility in the name of Christ. It's, it's a guarantee. Hostility that will often lead to death. The church is filled with a history of martyrdom of the saints. It's filled with it. Are we willing, honestly, to serve our Lord Jesus Christ to love Him and obey Him and to honor His name even to the point of physical death. I don't know many of you that would. I don't. I would struggle with that. Let's just be honest. That's a difficult calling, and we have to ask ourselves. Even in our recent, in our current situations, even this week, the Supreme Court has decided some things against the church that many in our Circles are raising up as a... And it is a concern. The Supreme Court has said that in Arizona, the state of Arizona is legalized, or they they are justified in limiting the numbers of worshipers who can gather in a church. Even in the state of California, they're now forbidding church gatherings, and they're forbidding Christians to sing. But we as American Christians look at that as a great persecution. Now, is it troubling? Absolutely. Is it concerning? Absolutely. Is it a form of persecution? Agreed. But is it persecution to the point of death? Could come. It's not here yet. We have to ask ourselves, is this persecution and hostility toward the faith that leads to death? See, first, we've got to think about death here. This is part of what Jesus is speaking to us here in verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's part of the faith. You see, first, we've got to think about this. Death is not a punishment for Christians. Let's ponder that for a minute. As sorrowful as death is, as painful as death is, death is not a punishment for us. You see, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And what is the penalty of sin? That's death. And all the penalties of sin have been paid in full by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so death for us in the faith is not a punishment. So as we look towards suffering that leads to death, we cannot look at that as something that is punishment from God. For the Christian, actually, death is a joyous time. When I have been with people who have been on their, who are on their deathbeds at the end of their lives, I've been with people who, who are not Christians, and I've been with people who are genuinely in the faith, and there's a stark difference at that moment of losing their life. Those who are not Christians are terrified. Those who are Christians are at peace. And it's a joyous experience and it's a privilege to be with a dear saint of God as they breathe their last and they breathe out a breath of peace. It's it's sorrowful. It's painful. But oh, what a blessing to watch a dear saint of God go home to glory. Amen? So suffering that leads to death is not punishment. Secondly, death 
is the final outcome of living in a fallen world. That's just the reality of the world we live in. God is, actually, he's wise here and not applying this reward of Christ's redemption now. Instead, he applies the benefits of salvation. He applies this blessing to us gradually over time. This idea that we call sanctification, right? Salvation in Christ occurs through the blood of Christ alone. And we submit to that. We worship him for that. We beg for his forgiveness for that. But we're not perfect yet. And we say amen, Christians. There is a lifetime of process. The salvation moment is literally the beginning of the process that will bring us to a glorified end at death as we enter into heaven. And throughout our earthly lives now, we are in this process of sanctification. Despite what some Christian brothers and sisters say that sanctification saves you, that's not it. You're saved by the blood of Christ. Sanctification is a lifetime process of growing and maturing in Christ. Amen? Thirdly, God uses the experience of death actually to complete our sanctification. That's God's wisdom. He allows us to live in this fallen world with death still here, even though Christ has conquered that, we are still experiencing death, and at the moment of death, that completes our sanctification. You see, the redeemed in Christ know through assurance that we never have to pay any penalty for sin and because that's been fulfilled by Christ. And when we do experience pain and suffering, God is actually disciplining us. He's growing us. He's challenging us. You see, when we experience pain and suffering, we, act, we experience aging. Can, we, can anybody agree with me that the aging process brings pain with it? But the aging process brings frailty to our bodies and weakness and often illness, and all of this can lead to death. It's actually another form of discipline that God permits us to go through in order that our sanctification might be furthered and, and ultimately complete when we go to be in God's presence. So when we think about persecution that leads to death, martyrdom, we've got to look at it from the Christian perspective that it's a blessing because it is a completion of our sanctification. It allows us to go into the presence of the Lord with dependence. It's painful, but it's true. You see, Paul speaks about this ongoing conforming to the image of Christ to the point of death in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me, for to me to live in Christ and to die is gain. You see, therefore, even though death will eventually come, as Christ reestablishes the eternal kingdom of heaven on earth, God uses this process of death as the final act of sanctification for us as believers as we enter into his presence for all eternity, right? Remember that the hostility engaged upon Christians here often leads to martyrdom or death at the hands of of a powerful force. So where does this come from? Where does this hostility against Christians come from? That Jesus is speaking to, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Where is this persecution coming from? Let's ponder this for a minute. Satan is the prince of this world. Let's not forget that. And he will never stop encouraging his demons, his disciples, 
to come against us. He's going to continue to push against the one who crushed his head at the cross. It is the passion of Satan who is the accuser. It is the passion of this evil one to carry out hostility against the members of the body of Christ. And by doing so, Satan is seeing this as him getting his revenge against Jesus himself. That's where that's really where a lot of hostility comes from against the Christian. That's where the hostility comes from against the church. And so it's logical that anyone who submits to Christ's lordship, it's logical for us to see how monstrous and unfair this is. Wouldn't you agree? How many of us look at the hostility of Satan as something that is fair? How many of us look at persecution as something that is fair? It seems illogical. Jesus, we love you. We we, we submit to you. We honor you. We obey you. Why is this happening to us in our mind? It seems illogical, doesn't it? You see, it's possible to see this persecution as something that's unfair. But let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, the Apostle Peter and his epistles really helps us unpack and explore the meaning of persecution and suffering of the saints. We went through a sermon series in First and Second Peter uh, about a year and a half ago. And so much of what we're saying today may be repeated, but it's worth repeating. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. We are called as Christians here that in the midst of evil, we are to bless others. Think about that. The Beatitudes call us as blessed in the midst of persecution. And in the midst of evil coming against us, we are to be humble, we are to be sympathetic, we are to express brotherly love, we are to be tender, and we do not repay evil for evil. As persecution comes against the church, we are commanded in Scripture not to respond in like kind. Now, how many of us in this room hear that and think, well, that's not fair? How many of us in this room would just love to get back at the, those who hate the church? It's, it's, it's honest. It's part of our sin nature. It's part of our sin nature to want to react and respond the same way that somebody hurts us. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. But we're reminded in scripture that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, did not fight back. He, he saved his rebuke for those who deserved it. But when it came to his sacrifice on the cross, He laid down willingly. He could have fought back, but he didn't. We are called to be the same. Now, further on in in 1 Peter chapter 3, down to verses 13 through 17. Let's take a look at this. Peter calls us to... We see a call to trust. To trust Christ, the one who protects us from harm. Look here at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ 
may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You see, whenever persecution comes against the church, we are commanded in Scripture to respond with kindness, with gentleness, with love and compassion, because Christ himself gives us that example. So the teaching of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 is actually founded upon the persecution of him, Jesus Christ himself. He would never call his faithful to suffer unjustly if he himself had not endured the same. Jesus is not calling us in the Beatitudes to endure persecution and he sit back in the ivory tower and tell us what to do. He leads by example. He goes right into the midst of the sinful problem of the world and he endures the pain and the suffering for us and he calls us to in like kind. We are going to be under the name of Christ we're going to be persecuted, actually worse than he was. The reality, and the, this is bringing some sober reality to us, isn't it? We are called as Christians to suffer. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus himself suffered. He suffered for a purpose. He suffered for us. He suffered for our sins to bring in righteousness. And the gospel of Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes is pointing to righteousness. We are blessed if we are under the righteousness of our Lord. You see, as long as the world remains in its fallen state, and can we agree that the world is corrupt, broken, and need of repair? Even non-Christians will agree with me that the world is in trouble. But the church, we have the answer, and that's the blood of Christ. So as long as the world remains in its fallen state, let me remind you and encourage you, there will be plenty of opportunity for persecution of the church. As long as we continue to endure this fallen world, trust me, there will be plenty of opportunity for the church to be persecuted. But as long as the world is in its fallen state, let us also remind ourselves there will be plenty of opportunity to proclaim the gospel despite the persecution. As long as the world is fallen, as long as we are enduring persecution, there are that many more opportunities for us as the church to proclaim the gospel in the midst of it. Amen? You see, it's this this ordinary calling of Christians. It's ordinary for us to be hated by the world. The world is by definition anti-Christ. And the children of God will be seen as opposition to this world. This spirit of anti-Christ is naturally going to oppose us. The spirit of anti-Christ in the fallen world will naturally look at the church as an enemy. That's why the persecution is coming. You see, the flesh cannot endure the doctrine of the gospel because when the church and the gospel is proclaimed, exposure of sin happens. And whenever someone who is outside of Christ, those who are in the world, when their sin is is revealed, that's painful. Even those of us in the church, those of us who are under the blood of Christ, let's be honest, when God deals with us, how pleasant is that sometimes? When God reveals our sin, it is painful. And unless you have the love of Christ in you, that pain is going to result in a reaction, a hostility. And so when the world has the light of Christ shined upon it, they're going to react in hostility. That's just part of it. 
You see, it's the shedding of Christ's light upon the dark heart of the sinful soul that the world cannot endure. It's the same reason that whenever you look at a, a loved one, a friend who is not in Christ, and you try to speak the gospel to them, how often do they reply to you with kindness? A lot of times when you try to share the gospel with a loved one or a friend, what is their reaction? It's hostile. It's because the light of Christ, the truth, is revealing something in them that they don't want to pay attention to. They don't want to acknowledge the truth, and it hurts them, and so they're going to react in pain and hostility. So why is it that the church is persecuted? I think it's primarily for that reason. And so do we stand for the truth there, or do we cower down? Or when hostility comes to us, are we going to lash back in the same way? If we're in Christ, if we are in the kingdom of heaven, I think we're called to a different reaction. You see, let's remember that the form of persecution that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 5, verse 10, is the persecution of righteousness. The persecution of righteousness is much different than the persecution of foolishness. It's very possible that many Christians bring upon themselves unnecessary scrutiny by not living in Christ's righteousness, but instead in their own self-righteousness, that of a sin-filled pride. There are far too many times when we all have received rebuke or for actions of our own, choosing that are neither Christ-honoring nor righteous at all. Now, if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter speaks about this too. When we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Peter reminds us what kind of righteousness brings righteous suffering. He says in verse 12 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You see the language here repeated from Jesus? Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Look look here at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see the teaching here? Let's not confuse righteous persecution, persecution against the name of Christ, versus suffering and persecution for our foolishness. How many people have claimed falsely that they are a victim? Oh, I'm just persecuted. They don't love me because I'm a Christian. And then when you start talking about it, you start thinking, well, you're not acting like a Christian. You're actually being pretty hateful. Uh, what do you expect? And we say amen. You see, the idea of suffering as a meddler here in verse 15 is the idea of a busybody or a gossip that stirs up disorder in the midst of peace. Anybody been around those kind of folks? Everything's all peaceful and orderly, and a busybody or a gossip comes in, and they just want to cause trouble. And then when you call them out on their sin, how do they react? Oh, don't attack me! Right? I've told this story before in the pulpit. I don't know if I've told it here recently, but... Years ago, in my first pastorate, I had a, a young couple come into my office, and their history was really troubled, okay? 
they had been. This is a young couple who had been divorced for several years. They were. They had been married. They had been divorced, and it was the wife who left the husband, and she went off and 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 had fair, several other men, and he was left alone, and she had come back home, and they wanted to reconcile, and they wanted to bring things back together, and they came into my office, and and of course the, this young lady, she was just boohooing and snotting and sneezing. You know how it goes, right? Oh, his family, they just don't believe in me. They're treating me so bad. I just want to come back and make things right, and they're just treating me awful. I wasn't trying to be mean or anything. I just listened, and I just, okay, let's start talking some honesty here. And I said, now let's stop and think about what happened a few years ago. And I looked at the young lady, and I said, don't you think that maybe it may take some time for them to trust you? Her reaction to that simple question, a sincere, honest question, was she was so vile and angry, she threw chairs in the office, stormed out of the office. I have never been talked to that way before by a pastor. That's exactly how she sounded. Okay? Then the young man is sitting there like a deer caught in headlights as this ex-wife who had cheated on him several times storms out of the room. And he's sitting there dumbfounded, didn't know what to say. And we just sit there and we look at each other for a bit. And I just look at him and I said, do you want to marry that again? No. (laughs) Now, needless to say, they didn't get back together. I mean, there was a lot of deeper issues there in the relationship. You see, when, when, when we are sincerely under the blood of Christ and righteousness is what we practice as Christ calls us to practice and we submit to His Lordship and persecution comes, we have enough to stand on right there. We don't need anything else to fight back. But when we cause our own troubles, trust me, the consequences will be what they will be. And this is what Peter's talking about here in 1 Peter chapter 4. So let's not make, let's, let's just make sure that we don't fall into the self-righteous pride of I'm a victim. You see, there's a very important teaching there for the church. You see, because there's certain things that God hates. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Beginning in verse 16. You see, this idea of suffering as a busybody, a gossip, a meddler. Um, this stirs up Pete, uh, disorder. And God sees this sin as equal to the crimes of a thief or a murderer. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. If you remember last week, we looked at the beatitude of blessed are the peacemakers. And how did we define biblical peace? Biblical peace is putting things back into their proper order and their proper place. Those who come in intentionally sowing discord and stirring up trouble, getting things out of order and out of place, this is what God says He hates. 
You see, so why does God hate these sins so much? Why does, why is there a list here in the book of Proverbs about things that the Lord despises, things that He hates? It's because what's at the core of these sins? Selfish behavior, disruptive behavior, disorder. It's, it's really a reflection of the activity of Satan versus the activity of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because remember, what is it that Satan does? He causes disorder. He causes things to be fallen out of place. That is his only tool. So let's, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 here, verses 10 through 12. We're going to kind of wrap this up. You see, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 explains further the type of persecution that a child of God will endure as part of the inheritance of the kingdom. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he says in verse 12, Rejoice in this, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You see, these final verses of the Beatitudes actually speak to three specific types of suffering and persecution. And remember, this is persecution in the name of Christ. First of all, Jesus speaks about a physical persecution. He then speaks about a verbal insult or persecution. He then speaks about false accusations. All of these are persecutions that come against righteousness. First of all, Jesus tells us to expect physical persecution. The Greek word here for persecution it actually implies a chasing away. Whenever we are being persecuted for righteousness, if we are persecuted in Christ, we are actually being chased away by the world. Get away from me. Because when the light of Christ reveals sin, everybody pushes back, right? See, the believer who has the spiritual character of these previous Beatitudes will actually have an attitude akin to Christ. If we are imitating Christ through the righteousness of Christ, there's going to be persecution, and this attitude will automatically be rejected by the world, and the world will want to chase Christ away. And so if that's our attitude, if that's the way we live, that's what they're pushing back against. That's what persecution means. Next, Jesus tells us to expect verbal insults. To revile, when he speaks about reviling here, to revile means to insult face-to-face. Looking at somebody in hostility, to cast insults, Actually, to throw abusive words in the face of somebody. That's what it means to be, to be reviled. Anybody ever had that happen to you? How many people in this room have done that to others? To throw words out in an aggressive manner. That's, see, insults here are a form of aggression. Persecution and aggression is not always physical. It can very much be verbal. You see, we often think of aggression in this way. We have to think about how we, how do we express our aggression? How do we express our frustrations? It's not always in the physical, because verbal insults will often do much more harm. Now, this again is a generalization, but in psychology it has been documented that men often express aggression through physical violence. Not always, but that's because men are more physical. If we are aggressive, we're going to express that physically. Women, on the other hand, will often express aggression through words, because they're not as physical. Again, that's a generality. It's not an absolute, but you kind of see the difference here. Aggression is aggression, whether it's physical or whether it's verbal. It's just as damaging. And I would say verbal aggression is probably more damaging. Lastly, Jesus talks about to expect false accusations. Now, where verbal assault are words that are said face-to-face, false accusations is in the form of gossip or slander, that is often done behind our back in secret. Now, that's the more difficult way 
of persecuting somebody. It's difficult to come against that kind of persecution because it's done behind our back. Now, if you, if you yell at me face to face, I can stand up to you. But if you gossip and slander behind my back, that's difficult to uh, deal with because number one, you got to figure out who said it, when they said it, how they said it, and figure out whether it's worth your time and effort to go and confront it. A lot of times all that's difficult. So gossip and slander, false accusation is the worst kind of persecution that comes. And the purpose of these accusations is to lift up the accuser by tearing down the victim. How many of us have been guilty of that? You see, 1 Peter chapter 3 that we just read, verses 13 through 18, that summarizes the impact of these false accusations. But Paul tells us here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It seems like those who bring a, a false accusations and slander against us, they prosper from that at our expense. Now, as Christians, we face that often. And that's the one that's the most difficult to deal with. So there are clearly times in the Christian life that that is wrought with suffering and persecution. I mean, Jesus teaches much about peace in the Christian life, right? And it's during these times of peace and ease that Christianity must continue to prepare for the day of persecution. I mean, the, the Christian life, let's make sure that we don't misunderstand. Jesus is not saying all of Christian life is full of sorrow and persecution. There are great, vast amounts of peace in Christ in our Christian walk. Amen? Would you all agree? I have to admit, I mean, there are, I am peaceful in this moment of my life with the Lord. But when persecution inevitably comes, we need to be prepared for that. That's the point of the moments of peace. It's like a soldier preparing for the inevitable battle. If you've ever been in the military, there's a lot of downtime. Why? Because trust me, when the battle comes, you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. And so Jesus grants us large amounts of peace because he knows the battle will come. It's also like the student preparing for the inevitable final exam. Maybe the student has too much peace, and then they have to cram at the last minute. But really, the stress of the final exam, if you're prepared, moments of preparation and peace allows you to do well. So in proportion, the life of the Christian is most often under sorrow and suffering, but it's rare that God will actually spare us from persecution, but he, he actually gives us times to preparation and peace. Now let's close with this point. Only the next, give me five minutes and I'll be done. You see, the paradox here is that Jesus is showing a stark contrast again from the way the world thinks and the way the kingdom of heaven works. You know, we are in the last days. Can we say amen to that? As Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually ushering in the last days. He says, when he establishes the kingdom of heaven, the last days started then. The last days is not something in the future. We're in it now. But there is a judgment coming. And much of the Sermon on the Mount is very, and this is the word I've tried to teach you over the last few weeks, eschatological. The big word about the end times. What does this mean? We're talking about reward here. We're talking about blessing and reward. That is clearly a part of the end times thinking and teaching. You see, Scripture here talks about a threefold blessing. When we talk about blessings, we talk about the, king, the blessings of the kingdom. We're talking about present blessings. We're actually talking about a millennial blessing. And we're talking about an eternal blessing. What does that look like? Jesus teaches us in Mark chapter 10, Verses 29 to 30, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So even Jesus here in Mark chapter 10 speaks about the present persecution, a millennial persecution, or I'm sorry, blessing, a present blessing, a millennial blessing, and an eternal blessing. See, God's faithful will experience blessings even now. Even in the midst of our persecutions, we're going to see God's blessing even now, right? Let's think about stories of brave sufferings of God's faithful being elevated to high positions of power after suffering in the Bible, right? The Jews were maliciously accused of disobeying the Babylonian decree of worshiping King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. Remember? In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar decrees, you must worship me, and the Jewish people refused. But we think, we read about three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood truthfully for the one true God of Israel and they suffered potential death in that fiery furnace. What happened after they endured that trial? They were promoted in the kingdom. And actually what happened was that Nebuchadnezzar decreed that the one true God would be honored throughout all of Babylon after that. Amen? So there are blessings even now in the midst of our persecution. we got to think also about Joseph in the Bible. In Genesis chapters 37 through 41, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was imprisoned. What happened there? He rose in prominence and favor, starting in prison to the point that he ended up in the palace of Pharaoh and eventually as the prime minister of Egypt. He suffered but received blessing in the now. Secondly, Jesus talks about a millennial blessing. There is a millennial aspect of blessings here to the kingdom of heaven. Christ will establish a thousand-year reign on earth. We're going to close with this. Revelation chapter 20. Flip over there. Revelation chapter 20. We've got to look at how blessings come. Revelation chapter 20. There is a millennial aspect. Millennial meaning the thousand years. When we look at verses 1 through 6, we see a millennial blessing for the saints. Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. You see where that blessing is? The first resurrection is the resurrection of the faithful, the ones who suffered and endured righteously for the kingdom. 
I want to read verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So there's the millennial blessing. That's the millennial reward for standing firm in the gospel, standing firm for Christ, even in the midst of martyrdom. Amen? Lastly, the blessing of the kingdom is eternal. The theme of the Beatitudes is reward and blessing. But what is the ultimate final blessing that we are granted as a gift? It's the ultimate blessing that in Christ the faithful become kingdom citizens, not just now, but forever. Now that is a gift, a reward, a blessing that I want to grab onto, don't you? Right. No matter how the secular world refuses the truth of the gospel and rejects the, the truth of the gospel, rejecting Christ, rejecting the church, the gift of eternal life, that reward will never be removed. Remember that. Now, slander and gossip is difficult to tolerate. Persecution, physical violence, hatred against us, that's hard to deal with. But we see from our Lord's example that to suffer slander, persecution, violence, martyrdom in the name of God's glory is actually part of the Christian life. And Jesus' critics said evil things even about Him in attempt to discredit Him. We remember in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, this is what they said about Jesus. They called Him a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was Gossip and slander against the Son of God. They hated Him. They reviled Him. They killed Him. He endured it so that you and I could have an eternal blessing and an eternal reward. You see, but Jesus knows all this. He knows the minds of His accusers. He knows that their insults will not hinder Him from His mission. And that's the blessing that we can embrace. That's the hope that we have. And too often we can forget that His death actually allows the saint, us, the members of the kingdom, to have ultimate sanctification and entry into heaven. We cannot help regretting slander. We can't help dealing with the honest pain that persecution brings. But it's a part of the Christian life. A.W. Pink, who's the English Bible teacher and theologian, here's what he says. He said, It is a strong proof of human depravity that men's curses and Christ's blessings should meet on the same person. So our curses and Christ's blessing are both intermingled and working in the life of the Christian. That's the life that we have in Christ You see, the central theme of Beatitudes is righteousness, but let's not forget that righteousness is a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not something that we cause to happen. We don't go to God and say, I am righteous. I am living this way. Give me my reward. Righteousness and reward is a gift. So ultimately, there is a promised reward for us who genuinely express the attributes we find in the Beatitudes. Right? The first blessing that we have as followers of Christ is a life well lived. That's literally what blessing and happiness looks like. It's that we are living well, but we live well in the image of Christ. And there's no greater happiness happiness than this, right? Although the secular world is going to come against us in the name of Christ. 
Don't we have a full assurance that the reward for us is guaranteed by our Savior? Amen. Don't we have a reward waiting for us? We got the reward now because we have the privilege of living for Christ. We have the reward in the future of eternity. And actually in the millennial reign, we get to be co-regents with our Savior. Wow. That's an amazing truth. We've got to remember, though, that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we're going to inherit the kingdom. That's the blessing. That's the reward. And in the midst of persecution and suffering, let's hold on to that. Let's close with the words from the Apostle Paul. These are the encouragements he gives us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-8. through He said, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Are you worthy of the kingdom of God at this moment? That's the question I'm going to close us with. Are you worthy of the reward of the kingdom? And are you suffering for the kingdom? Let's continue here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affection those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul is telling us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that the eternal reward of the righteous is exactly this. We are enduring persecution, and it is God Almighty who will bring judgment to those who persecute us. Let's ponder that. It's difficult to live as Christians in a fallen world that hates us. A very popular book years ago uh, in Christian circles that I actually had to read years ago uh, talked about uh, resident aliens. Christians as resident aliens. Don't you feel sometimes in this world that you don't belong? I would argue that if you are living under Christ, if you are claiming the name of Christ and honestly looking at the world feels comfortable to you, I would ask the Lord to search your heart to see if you are under His righteousness and under His love and care because the kingdom of God is much more beautiful and attractive and appealing than anything the world can offer. And if we live that way, the world's going to hate us because we don't belong. Jesus tells us, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not, tall, I'm not calling us to go out and look for trouble. I'm not calling us to go out and walk in the middle of the riots and the protests in the name of Jesus. That would be foolishness. Stay away from the protests. Stay away from the riots, okay? We're not having any of that going on here. I'm thankful for that blessing. God has spared our community from that. But there's enough trouble in this world. And we as Christians are called to be the light of Christ. We're going to be looking at that here in the next few weeks, being salt and light in a fallen, sinful world. That's what's coming up next in the Sermon on the Mount. And with that is going to come persecution and suffering. Can we look forward to the reward that God promises us? Can we stand up as citizens of the kingdom with love and compassion and generosity Can we do that? Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. Even though words are hard, the truth can be difficult to grasp. The truth can be difficult to hear. And I pray, dear God, that you would cause us to love the words that you give us here in the Beatitudes, to rest in your affections, to understand that when the world comes against us, they're actually coming against you. Cause us, Father, to stand firmly, to give you honor and glory in the midst of hardship. Cause us to be those witnesses that you need us to be, that you call us to be, that you desire us to be. Lord, we can't stand firm in the gospel apart from your strength. And so, God, I pray in this moment, anyone who hears these words, that you would love them, that you would cause them to see where they stand in relation to your love and your care. If they are outside of your grace, Lord, I pray that you'd bring them in, that you would cause them to see how good it is to be in the kingdom. But dear God, I pray for those of us who do please you by living the way that we should, not on our own power, but under the blood of Christ, that when we stand in the midst of persecution, that you would stand with us. Strengthen us in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.